Hello, and welcome to episode six of the Quiet Mark podcast. I'm your host, Simon Gosling, CMO of Quiet Mark, the independent international approval award program associated with the UK Noise Abatement Society Charitable Foundation. It encourages companies worldwide to prioritize noise reduction within the design of everyday machines and appliances and find solutions to noise problems to benefit health and well-being. As I record the introduction to this episode, it's the 3rd of July, and just to give one of many examples of today's headlines, The Telegraph is leading with the headline, Restaurants and cafes are reopening. How will coronavirus change them? With the subheading, July the 4th is the date set for the reopening of restaurants and cafes, but how will they operate in a new socially distanced world? Just three days ago, we crossed over the 100-day point of lockdown. And with the UK's hospitality industry about to start up again, we thought it would be a good idea to focus this episode on acoustics within restaurants. How many times have you been to a restaurant and found yourself having to shout just to be heard? In trying to enjoy a conversation with a friend, you find yourself raising your voice, and then they raise their voice in return, and you raise your voice, then the people at the table next to you raise their voice, and before you know it, everyone in the restaurant is having to talk really loudly to be heard above the music, the clattering of the pots and pans in the kitchen, and the whole experience is a cacophony of noise. This is known as the Lombard effect, or Lombard reflex, and that's an involuntary tendency of speakers to increase their vocal effort when speaking in a loud noise to enhance the audibility of their voice. This change includes not just loudness, but also other acoustic features such as pitch, rate and duration of syllables. And someone who can tell us all about the Lombard effect and who has an encyclopedic knowledge of acoustics in general, especially when it comes to soundscapes, the sound design of products and how sound makes us feel, is today's guest, Wade Bray, Vice President of Head Acoustics Incorporated. Wade has 40 years of experience in automotive and information technology sound quality, musical instrument acoustics, church and performing arts venue acoustics, theatre sound system and electroacoustic enhancement system design, and loudspeaker and teleconferencing acoustics. He is active in the Society of Automotive Engineers, SAE, Noise and Vibration General Committee, organising the Instrumentation Papers sessions, the Sound Quality Workshop, and participating in the Chat with the Experts session at SAE Noise and Vibration Conferences. He is also a member of the Acoustical Society of America and the Institute of Noise Control Engineering, INCE, where he serves as Associate Editor for Psychoacoustics and Perception of the Noise Control Engineering Journal, NCEJ. Wade is Vice President of Head Acoustics Incorporated, the North American division of Head Acoustics GmbH, where, as technical officer, he provides customer training and support. Prior to his 1987 involvement with Head Acoustics, Wade was a senior consultant at Jaffe Acoustics Incorporated in Norwalk, Connecticut. Avocationally a classically trained organist, he has played and appeared in concert on a variety of extraordinary classical, symphonic and theatre pipe organs around the United States. Through Head Acoustics Incorporated, Wade has very recently introduced an intensive online training program, Sound Quality Analyst Certification, containing more than 11 hours of video presentations in three levels, with examples, study guides and software-specific hands-on material in the second and third levels. Welcome to the show, Wade. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure and an honor. You're you're in Brighton, but not the Brighton UK where QuietMark has an office. You're in an altogether different Brighton. Tell the listeners where you're situated, please. 
We are about 45 miles west-northwest of Detroit and essentially due north of Ann Arbor, which is the University of Michigan City, uh, a lot of high-tech industry and so on there as well, which is essentially due west of Detroit. So we're very nicely situated. It's a town of about 15,000 people. I got on Google Maps and saw that it's eight and a half hours flight away between the two Brightons. They're, they're twin cities, aren't they? Twin, twin towns. Yes, they are. I believe they, they are sister cities officially. And uh, very interestingly, Brighton, Michigan has uh, for a long time had parallels. The, the newspaper here is the Argus and uh, your Brighton and Hove has an Argus newspaper or the Argus newspaper as well. Now, you are a friend of my colleague and CEO, Poppy Skeeler, and she said you're going to love meeting Wade. We've already done a preparation call for this and I've enjoyed that thoroughly, but we never got down to how it is that you came to meet Poppy. Uh, how did that happen? It was entirely by happenstance. I was at the Internoise 2012 in New York City and was a papers session chair and had a banquet ticket. Uh -huh. So I came into the banquet a few minutes later than I would like to have before the, everyone really started eating. And all of the tables were, were essentially full. So I looked and looked and looked. Uh -huh. And I found one seat at a table where I recognized a friend and colleague, uh, Professor Dr. Ning Xiang of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York, who heads the graduate acoustics program uh, under the School of Architecture that my former colleague and employer, Chris Jaffe of Jaffe Acoustics, had started. So I sat at that seat, and to my left was Ning, and we said a few words. Then there was a charming lady to my right who began to speak in a British accent, and she says, uh, what is your name? And I introduced myself. And then she said, what do you do, Wade? And uh, uh, she introduced herself as Gloria Elliott. Uh -huh. So uh, she was fascinated that I was involved in sound quality. And I'm very enthusiastic and interested in all aspects of sound and putting other things together as well. So we immediately plunged into a great conversation. And she says, just a moment, I'm going to go get my daughter and our colleague. So she walked over about three tables away and she came back with Poppy and Lisa Lavia. And uh, we managed to have a slight discussion at our table and two other people managed to go away and find another table at least temporarily so that we could all get together. That's how it all started. Oh, fantastic. I should explain as well for the listeners that might not know that Gloria is Poppy, the CEO of Quiet Mark's mother, but she's also the chairman of the Noise Abatement Society and the daughter of John Connell, who was the founder of the Noise Abatement Society in 1959. So there's a long history there and uh, it's great to know that you came to meet one another there. So I was reading on your LinkedIn, Wade, that you've been with Head Acoustics since 1987, 33 years. That's a, a great amount of time. What do Head Acoustics do? Head Acoustics is a company that was founded by my colleague and actually a gentleman whose uh, paper and presentation, in addition to mine and the restaurant acoustics we'll be discussing today, Klaus Genowit. And he was completing his uh, doctoral degree about a mathematical model of the head-related transfer function by which the physics of human spatial hearing is enabled that with two ears we're able to hear directionally and all of the wonderful things that come from that, essentially life in and with sound. So he worked, was working on completing his doctorate, and he was discovered by a major German automaker, which said, we're very interested in what you're doing. We would like to use this ability to hear with natural human spatial hearing and make acoustical measurements. We will fund the completion of your work. And that went on, and he, uh, Professor now Professor Ginwood, not then, uh, worked with them for several years, and then completed his doctorate and was, in 1986, uh, able to start the company Head Acoustics, based on the binaural artificial head, which is a model of a human head and shoulders and torso that has microphones in the correct location inside the ear canal entrances mm -hmm. and with proper technical approach uh, permits a person to hear 
exactly, really, as if they had been in the original situation. And that has given rise to the the entire origin and continuance of our company based principally on human perception of sound, but also human perception of many other things, including vibration and the meaning and the context and so on. Each human being has a supercomputer up here in the skull, 86 billion, B billion neurons, which is doing things all the time. It is doing massive signal processing, integrating your vision, your hearing, what you know, what you are thinking about, what interests you have in life, where you've been, what happened years ago, what happens right now. All of this is being integrated and interrelationally databased. So every sensation you have in sound and vision, and particularly now we're talking about sound, is contextual and is involving all of these other things. So it is essential to realize that sound perception involves what the brain is doing. The brain has an attention mechanism that can get turned on and profoundly change what is important in the sound and what is causing you to like it or not like it, typically not, when the attention mechanism turns on and so on. So head acoustics has taken into consideration this whole idea. Could you perhaps share with us some recent projects? Brands go to you because they want you to... They want to know why a sound is a certain way. For example, an existing product or a product under development, if you have a certain characteristic of sound that you want and it's not happening or that you hear something in the sound which is not ideal, which might attract negative attention or separate the synthesis, the orchestration of the entire intent of the product and the goodness, and you say, I'm in this wonderful vehicle, it feels good, it sounds good, it handles well, or in a home or in an office situation, nothing breaks that beautiful synthesis. But if there is a little buzz or a rattle or a rumble or a ticking or squeaks or something of this kind, in any of these contexts, it separates the sound and the sound becomes negatively and separately understood. So The idea of what we do is to enable sound design, to enable improving, understanding, measuring in various ways, principally psychoacoustically, but also with all of the conventional measurements, using the entire panorama of tools that our 86 billion neurons have been able to develop to enable us to understand better. People come to me and say, I can hear this, but I can't measure it. And yes, they can measure it if they know how to go about it and how to think about it. So this is one of the things that I do with our customers is to train, to help and so on and so forth. And every single day is a marvel of what's going on with sound. It never becomes tiresome, it never becomes old, and it never becomes stale. And I like to infect people with that, not only technical colleagues, companies, engineers, but people in general. I know when people talk about the the rare experience of getting into a a Rolls-Royce car and they say, when I closed the doors, it sounded beautiful. When I put on the indicator, the clicking of the indicator sounded beautiful. And sound played a really important part to their perception of this being a luxury vehicle. Nevertheless, with sound design, a car's one thing, but with some objects that you've been discussing there, isn't the sound a fixed thing or can it be tuned to feel more luxury and more pleasant after its invention? It can indeed. In the the development of a product, and let's stay for a moment in the automotive idea, by no means limited totally to that, but let's say that a new car is being planned for a particular market level, a particular uh, purchase cost, and a particular intent in terms of quality, performance, handling, etc. There needs to be, and people tend to think it's going to be automatic all too often, and it isn't automatic. There needs to be an orchestration, a person who conducts the overall concept to make sure that the indicator noise is appropriate in the context of the Rolls-Royce, the uh, 
controls when you change your air conditioning settings uh, don't make clicky clacky sounds and uh, other things that draw your attention away from the beautiful integration. So there needs to be a conducted assembly of all of the concepts and all of the devices, concepts, products, sub-assemblies, parts involved. And staying with automotive, you drove a car which was rigged up in such a way where you could hit, am I getting this right, a Mercedes S-Class, a diesel truck, and a Porsche Carrera sound effect within the same vehicle, and it really changed your perception of the vehicle. Tell us more about that experience. Yes. The, the connection between the senses uh, can go in different directions at different levels, and some of the things that happen, and that happen very robustly, are quite amazing. For example, let, let me give you one called the McGurk effect first, and this is going to lead directly into what you just asked me to tell. Uh -huh. uh, the McGurk effect is, is a very well-known thing that is taught where if a person is able to be seen while speaking, like you and I are currently seeing each other on a camera, or we could be basically uh, one or two feet away from each other, three feet, five feet, so that we can see each other's mouth movements. Mm -hmm. The speech brain uses the sense of vision if the person can be seen. So the McGurk effect is an absolutely dramatic demonstration, which is extremely robust, where a person is saying, and is recorded saying, ba, 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 with a B, ba, ba, ba. Okay. That is always the sound. But if you see the talking head saying ba, 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 you hear ba, ba, ba. But if you see the talking head saying fa, 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 not touching the lips, but clearly making the fricative sound of fa, you absolutely hear fa, fa, fa. And you can do a split screen where the voice uh, is, the sound is always ba, ba, ba. The head on the left is going ba, 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 closing the lips mm -hmm. to make that syllable. The head on the right is going fa, fa, fa. Yeah. And when you look at each one, you hear the syllable. So this is the kind of signal processing that the brain does utilizing different senses, even without you realizing it. Mm. So coming to the car situation, yeah. uh, at Head Acoustics yeah. in Germany, which is our headquarters in Herzogenrat near Aachen, they had the mobile sound car. Sound car is a, a little technological uh, item that we have developed where one makes technical recordings of vehicle powertrains on a dynamometer under very controlled, objective, careful conditions at different RPMs under different loads and so on. and has an entire set of conditions of different loads. This information is then run in a computer connected with the throttle position and the engine RPM of an actual vehicle, for example, which this was. This was a small city car. I won't mention the, the, the brand, mm -hmm. but uh, basically a small car with a very small four-cylinder engine and a five-speed manual transmission. So a very simplified car for getting around town. Nothing fancy, nothing exciting. Okay. So I drove the car and uh, I thought, well, this is okay. I can go from point A to point B in Aachen in it, but uh, I'm not really that thrilled about having to drive it all day. <laughs> so then I put on the Bose noise-canceling headphones and turned on the uh, computer for the uh, mobile sound car. And the data sets that happened to be installed in it that day were a Mercedes S-Class, an MAN diesel large over-the-road truck like a Kenworth in the United States, and also a Porsche Carrera. So you literally got synchronized with what you were doing with the transmission, the engine RPM, the throttle position. You got the sounds of these vehicles. The Mercedes was too elegant and too quiet to be appropriate for the driving feeling and knowing that I'm in this car, which I see and feel, because, of course, the dynamics of the car are the real car, period, all the time, no matter whether you're listening to one or the other or nothing. And then I tried the MAN diesel truck, and mm -hmm. this was too large and ponderous a sound, again, not coordinated with the vehicle sensitivity. So, so this doesn't work, throw it away. Then I switched to the Porsche data set and began to drive the car, and I was thunderstruck that the car felt different 
Absolutely. I knew it was not. I knew it was the same car. It was the same dynamics, the same suspension, engine, transmission, but it was better handling. It was more fun to drive. I wanted to go explore the country roads. I didn't want to get out of the car. It was just absolutely a different sensation. I knew that it was not different, but this was something my brain was doing. And it was doing it so robustly, like the McGurk effect, that it was completely robust. So I then made a mistake because I pushed the throttle down too far. And this little tiny car with a small engine would not accelerate like a Porsche Carrera in nearly full throttle condition. Yet I had the Porsche Carrera sound. This broke the spell. It was metastable. It didn't work anymore at any setting. I realized, oh boy, it doesn't work. So I had to get out of the car, go away, do other things, come back, get in, start the car up, put on the Porsche, and then remember, don't push the throttle more than 60% down. Then, as long as I wanted to drive, I had this really delightful, better handling experience. So that is the kind of thing that can be done in terms of design with the interaction that your brain is doing with signal processing. You can't help it. Your brain is doing it. You know about some of it, and you don't know about a lot of other things. I'm a bit of a computer gamer. I love playing computer games. One of my favorite games are driving games. I play Grid and I play Dirt Rally. And I wear headphones when I play. And you can drive a, a 1960s Mini Cooper like you're in the Italian job. Or you can drive a 1960s Ferrari like in Ford versus Ferrari, the film. You know, the Le Mans Rally car. And the yes, game... I saw that. Oh, it's a great movie. Did you enjoy it? Absolutely. Fantastic <laughs> movie. But the sensation when I'm playing the game... Uh, really changes and the sound is a huge part of when I'm doing gameplay in terms of my sensation of the speed of well as they say in the in Ford versus Ferrari trying to achieve the perfect lap but one of the things I'd like to know as well there is it's interesting to hear you talking about the experiment that you did with the three different sounds in the single vehicle and that sounds fun but it does of course have huge practical applications in the real world especially at this time where we're seeing for the first time electric vehicles outsell petrol vehicles I'm wondering we were having a chat yesterday I told you I was working in film and there was a moment in about 2007 where people stopped shooting commercials on 35 mil, not altogether, but reduced the amount of 35mm shooting and started shooting more on digital. And I had so many directors saying to me, can I add film grain to the digital images because they felt that the digital images looked too clean. For want of a better analogy, when it comes to sound and electric vehicles, do they want a synthesized sound of an old petrol car even though they're riding in an electric vehicle? The situation right now is that we're in a transition. There is not a history of what is the sound of an electric vehicle or what has that become over anything like the length of time that we've had petrol vehicles. So the industry, the engineers are much farther along in this with understanding and having driven these. Not so many people in the driving public have experienced riding in or driving an electric car yet. So there is this sort of sliding scale of everybody being in transition, but some being farther along, in my opinion, than others. And it is being realized that because we have complete lack of the original powertrain sound of the internal combustion engine, which masks a lot of other things and which provides a character, now we have a quiet background which has principally tonal components of the electric motor and the simple single-speed gearbox that runs the wheels from it. Mm -hmm. So ideas are coming in. What can we do to get a character that we want or maybe suggest a character that we're familiar with for a sporting car or a luxury car or something of that sort. So a lot of work is being done about creating sounds played through the audio system of the vehicle and so on and so forth. So yes, uh, for example, Porsche is one of the companies that is working in producing synthetic sound character internally to the car. And I understand that one can purchase this as an option with their EV and then uh, can switch it on or off. And there is a potential, of course, that it could have uh, different programming and, and things changed.
In the introduction, Wade, I mentioned that you very recently introduced an intensive online training program called the Sound Quality Analyst Certification, and that contains more than 11 hours of video presentations in three levels. That sounds like quite a production. You've been keeping busy. Very much I've been keeping busy, and two colleagues in our company, uh, one a gentleman named Steve Porter, whose idea this was to get some of my enthusiasm and knowledge about things into a structure that could be available online. We have been thinking for a long time about where should training go in order to be the most effective. And partly this has been brought into focus by the current COVID situation, the lockdown, and all of the virtual communication and business that everyone is doing. And uh, we've realized that it's a potentially excellent idea because you can have lectures, people can go back, pause, look again. They can do their hands-on without the pressure of a class that is running live with real people. They can do it on their own time. They can then go back and review and try something else, use it on materials and so on. So we put this all together. Another colleague named Shane Feed, who is one of our two consulting engineers at Head Consult in North America, uh, is the videographer and editor. He is very creative and all of us together have worked very hard. So thank you for mentioning it. Anyway, the idea is we've been approached for a long time by people who said, is there any way we could get a certification to be able to prove to ourselves and to our management, for example, that we are skilled to do sound quality analysis and design and so on and so forth. So we buckled down uh -huh. and came up with level one, which is basics of conventional analysis, the idea of human perception, going into psychoacoustic metrics, which is the development of algorithms that act like the human hearing does, how loud something is, is not really directly related to the sound pressure in decibels that's measured with a sound level meter. And there's much more beyond that. So then the next two levels, the middle level two and the ultimate level three, are software specific to our head acoustics Artemis suite software. The enrollees need to be familiar with that, having either taken the introduction course for that, or at least uh, for a number of months worked with it and had some guidance from us in the process. Anyway, that goes into a lot of other things. The human brain putting together a sound impression from how loud is it, what kind of time structure does it have, like wah, 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 or, brrr, or tick, 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 or occasional noises of some sort, tonalities that can be various kinds of things and changing or not, time structure or steady, all of them, and your brain puts them together. So the necessity of how to think, how to train your ear are really something that, that may seem complicated at first, but become very easy to get, and then how to analyze based on it. So we give a final test for each of the levels, and then a certification is given at the end of the course that uh, is renewable on, I believe, a six-month or an annual basis. I don't remember right now. Mm -hmm. Currently, this is available to North America, and uh, we've had uh, uh, the United Kingdom head acoustics colleagues are taking it themselves, and uh, they have one customer who is taking it as well. So I believe this is going to expand, but officially, it's North America right now. Fantastic. Where can someone find that, please? If you Google head acoustics, sound quality analyst certification, you will find under the videos uh, three one-minute uh, teasers, which are little excerpts from the three levels, which are by yours truly speaking, uh -huh. and presenting some basic ideas that are central to what is being done in these levels. That'll give you an idea. I see. And I was looking at the one-minute videos that you mentioned. On the level two video, you talk about someone's perception of sound, what makes them say, I like this or I, or I don't like this, and being able to measure that. Because once you can measure that, you can then take those measurements and apply them to products. I'd like to explore that a bit further. First of all, is sound like taste? I love Brussels sprouts. My friend hates Brussels sprouts. Does the same happen with sound? Or is it quite universal that one sound that is pleasing to one is a pleasing to all? 
It depends on the kind of sound. Uh, in terms of music, people like different kinds of music. That's, for example, uh, one thing. Another is people in different countries like the sound of different types of motorcycles. The uh, Oriental world and many other areas like the sound of the multi-cylinder inline four-cylinder motorcycle. Very smooth yet powerful sound. And uh, the American Harley-Davidson sound is unique and quite different. And there are a lot of people around the world and certainly in North America who prefer that sound where others say, oh, I don't like that sound. Mm. And, and so on and so forth. So it, it, it's quite variable. But the idea of your interest and your taste and what you're familiar with and maybe what you have become involved with is a factor. But in general, there are a lot of other things. For example, a beautiful, quiet day in the country, uh, a park that is quiet where you don't sense the noisy city around you. Those are the kinds of things that we can all agree on uh, are better sounds. Mm. And this leads again into the idea of soundscape, which is the human perception and uh, please bear with me here just a moment. I want to bring up uh, something as a, as a guide to myself. So I please do. See this uh, exactly right. There is a new standard in the ISO, which is the principal standards organization uh, in, in Europe uh, that covers soundscape as opposed to simply acoustics and levels and things of that sort. So the standard is ISO 12913, and it has three parts. Dash one, which is what the concept of soundscape is, an acoustic environment as perceived or experienced and or understood by a person or people in context. And that's ISO 12913-1, came out in 2014. So any sound situation that is to be analyzed according to this standard needs to consider three key components, acoustics, people, and context. They are simultaneous and they overlap each other. So simply uh, taking a, uh, a single microphone is not enough because another thing that my colleague, Professor Genuit, uh, has pointed out is that uh, as the basis of head acoustics, the idea of human spatial hearing and then being able to perceive sound in the normal way and then measure that set of data, the two channels and so mm -hmm. on, mm -hmm. you can find things out. So he has pointed out that perceived sound is spatial. It is a field phenomenon. It is not a spaceless point phenomenon. And I would add this comment. Using a single microphone and simply measuring level in dB to characterize a perceived sound situation is like using a light meter to characterize the perception of the Sistine Chapel ceiling. Um, one of the things we've been hearing when we've been talking on the Quiet Mark podcast to other acousticians is that acoustics is often not well very rarely let's say the first thing to be brought to the table when a stakeholder is describing what they want their building to be they're very good to come to the table with reference material of lights and furniture and wallpapers and all the interior design but when you ask the stakeholder what would you like the building to sound like it's almost something that in many instances hasn't really even been considered is it also an afterthought in product design this is very general it certainly affects the restaurant issue and so on and so forth the thing is that i would recommend to people to think because everybody hears and perceives and it is so automatic and so enjoyed or occasionally not enjoyed and so on that it isn't in the consciousness it isn't at the level of the brain of saying why do i need to include this or do i need to include it if they stop and think about perceptions they have had everybody the people who design an unfortunately noisy restaurant and have not thought of the acoustic consequences of some of the architectural ideas uh, have themselves experienced this. And if they stop a moment and think, what went on in the restaurant where I was uncomfortable and I don't really want to go back because it was noisy, 
what do I need to think about in terms of acoustics? And in many aspects, I was, as an example, a senior consultant in the architectural acoustics firm Jaffe Acoustics in Connecticut, which was principally, but not limited to, concert hall design. We also did a lot of office buildings and so on. All too often, architects and clients would get, as you have just said, very far down the road without realizing the need for acoustic thought. Mm -hmm. And uh, things like making the air conditioning quiet, of being very careful about air handling and heating and refrigeration of a building. For example, the dreaded roof-mounted air conditioning can unfortunately all too often not be well enough isolated. So you get a lot of low-frequency tonal rumbling noise when it is in action, especially for the people on the upper floors closest to where the machinery is, Mm. that uh, then has to be undone. And it's much harder and more expensive to undo it. Another thing is including organic natural ideas. And the soundscape idea has come into focus now. I mentioned the standard, but it really has been coming into focus for a long time in terms of people's concepts. Jaffe's, a little bit before I was there, had done an open plan office situation in a New York City building. The idea of open plan office, this is something I had worked on before I went to Jaffe and also afterwards, uh, is often quite difficult because you have the noise of people nearby talking on their phone, uh, running their printers, doing things that make transient and other kinds of noises, and you have to give them enough isolation that they can feel that they're able to work in their privacy and not be distracted and disturbed and so on. So the open plan office system very often needs to have technical noise added by loudspeakers. If you simply have an array of loudspeakers on, let's say, a checkerboard-like pattern in a ceiling above the drop ceiling Mm -hmm. uh, panels, uh, the problem is if it's fed by one signal, you localize separately each loudspeaker and a person will be aware there's a noise. There's, what is it, steam going on up there? There's something going And I can hear where it is. And if I move over here, now there's another one. Mm-hmm. And this is very disconcerting, and it highly limits the capability. If you have two or more completely independent channels of noise that are not related to each other moment to moment, and you feed the adjacent loudspeakers with the separately generated noises, then it's diffuse. It is perceived as everywhere. It's You can get more level out of it. You never notice where it's coming from, and it becomes completely benevolent wow. and very effective. So in the building in New York that I mentioned, there were two fountains in the lobby. And Dr. Chris Jaffe suddenly had the idea, let's put hydrophones, which are underwater microphones, if you will, in the fountains. And let's feed those signals into these separated channels that are feeding the ABABAB checkerboard ceiling at very low level. Mm -hmm. So that if you weren't really concentrating and knowing it was there, that you could hear it. Otherwise, you couldn't. It made a very positive effect. People said, this has become better. When they did it with no other changes, this has become better. They couldn't tell you why. So there is an organic, natural aspect to a technical soundscape element. You sent a deck about restaurants to me, and I read and then Googled uh, the Sur Mesure par Thierry Marx restaurant in Paris, which has white cloth walls, and then the restaurant Odessa in the Ukraine, which has thousands of ropes hanging in strands. And I really recommend listeners Google those two restaurants. But they've really gone to town to improve the acoustics of those spaces. Can good sound make the food taste better? Yes, it can. We get sensitization by other senses. Professor Ginnert's paper in in this uh, Louisville Acoustical Society of America restaurant session pointed out that there is junction and sensitization that, for example, if it's hot and humid in a restaurant, uh, you tend to uh, become more likely to be annoyed by noise. If the uh, design is a beautiful, cool, plainer 
uh, architecture that, of course, has hard surfaces and more reverberation, more reflection, and hence will tend to build up noise more, particularly from people speaking and raising their voices without realizing it, and then they do realize it more and more, which is called Lombard speech, by the way, that if a cool modern design exists, it is going to make the person subconsciously more sensitive to noticing noise and reverberation. Another thing is that you can have a bad feedback loop, that if you have a reflective or otherwise and or otherwise noisy restaurant, a person will raise their voice. They will initially do this subconsciously. And uh, what happens is the vocal effort goes up. The duration of the utterances, the syllables slow down a little bit. Energy gets moved to different frequencies all automatically by your brain. This is a servo loop. Uh, what you're hearing in terms of noise makes you subconsciously with your brain change the performance and the frequencies in your voice and make it higher level so that the formants move to areas in frequency that have a better signal-to-noise ratio. And as a result, then supposedly, you have a better ability to communicate. The problem is a little of that works subconsciously. If very much is needed, the person becomes aware of it. It becomes annoying that you have to do it. And uh, it becomes more and more difficult to speak and hear in such a situation. And privacy is, of course, squashed as well. So uh, we need to avoid that a person ever in a restaurant or otherwise, hopefully, becomes aware of having to cope and they can simply live and enjoy. The problem with the Lombard noise, once it starts, is it's likely to continue. And the zone in which it works and people are not aware of it is very narrow. And once it starts happening, then you have what I call Lombard runaway. And if a restaurant, due to architecture, hard surfaces, other noises, and so on, begins this process, then you have the difficulty that people are going to want not to come back. And the consequence is they don't enjoy their experience in the restaurant, no matter how good the food was. Their communication with their table, their privacy is not what it should have been, and they're unlikely to return. The restaurant then where the servo loop of the owner is architectural and economic, not acoustic necessarily, uh, and it should be more, uh, they then start to struggle financially and the restaurant may not survive because of this situation. There are ways to, at the outset, much more easily than later, but even later, to do things to get absorption out of sight or insight in ways that don't look out of tune with the architectural idea. So you can have your cake and eat it too with modern materials, techniques, and appropriate consulting so that these wonderful ideas in the modern restaurant in terms of architecture, which definitely should be encouraged to continue, need to be able to succeed and, and, and occur, but not have these unintended acoustical consequences. The servo mechanism of human speaking and hearing and brain signal processing is a matter of life that people don't think about and should because a, it affects a lot of what happens in your perception and enjoyment. And B, it simply is a magical thing in itself to think, wow, my brain is doing this. Is, isn't this an amazing thing? And think about it and be remark on it every day. Tell your friends and so on and so forth. But uh, I like to draw a couple of parallels. When people go to church and they are going to sing a hymn, Everybody in the congregation has the same idea. The purpose is we're here to sing a hymn. They all want to sing together. There is support music from the organ, orchestra, or band, and the singing occurs. And acoustical liveness, which may not be beneficial in the restaurant because of the likelihood of Lombard runway, becomes very beneficial to support that you can hear your neighbors singing, you hear yourself singing, you hear some of what the acoustics of the room are doing to all of this, which are beneficial and you sing together. There is an overall process controller. All the people are doing the same thing. They all are transmitting singing, and they're all receiving and hearing each other and the acoustics and themselves. In a restaurant, you don't have the overall process controller because everybody is there to enjoy the restaurant, the food, but then you have a group at a table, and the group wants to be isolated and communicate with themselves, not be heard by other tables, and not be disturbed by other people at the other tables 
uh, impinging on their conversation and privacy and their ability not to have to be aware of raising their voice and coping. So there's no overall process controller in the restaurant. What about the concert hall? In the concert hall, we have three different factors. There is the audience factor, the management factor, the orchestra management, the orchestra has to has to survive and make money. And we have uh, the musicians. Stage acoustics are extremely important, not just hall acoustics. The audience is there for the joint purpose of receiving and enjoying music and being emotionally uplifted by the music. The quiet, very quiet background noise of the air handling in a concert hall is essential so that the nuances of acoustics, the lowest levels of the decaying reverberation, which, by the way, because your ear brain is spatial, you are able to hear a sound at one frequency at a high level in one direction, at the same time, hear a sound in a different direction, maybe of a different size, like low-level decays and reverberant tails at different frequencies are noticeable despite hearing louder things going on at the same time. You are, in effect, sitting in a scintillating hemisphere of loud things, soft things, acoustical effects, and so on. Your brain is getting all of that. If it's a little bit too noisy, or if the acoustics aren't right in the audience, then the audience doesn't get all of this, and they're not fulfilled. If the musicians can't hear one another on stage appropriately, they are thinking subconsciously or consciously about I have to cope with this. What am I really doing? Do I have to play a little louder? Do I play differently? And the music cannot then take off and soar. If those two things don't happen, then the orchestra and the concert hall may struggle and may not survive. So the management needs for those two things to work, and then everybody gets a reward. It's a win-win all around, and it's self-sustaining in a good way. So I like to point those things out because that is the human organism in soundscape. And needs to be thought of in the restaurant. Please consider sound acoustics and the fact that the human being is the center of transmitting and receiving in the sound, in the acoustic, in the soundscape. I'm actually listening, thinking about experiences where I can relate to what you were saying. Poppy, our CEO, and I had dinner one evening in a New York restaurant. And uh, you talked about Lombard effect. And if I'm understanding that term correctly... I remember she and I were having a conversation and because of the surrounding noise and the proximity of the tables next to us, I had to talk a bit louder to be heard by Poppy, who then had to be spoken a bit louder to be heard. And it kind of escalated into this ridiculous thing where we're sitting, you know, the width of a table apart and almost shouting in one another's faces to try and have just a nice conversation. Am I understanding that that is the Lombard effect? That is that is the Lombard effect. And so I, I made in the, my presentation in the Louisville Restaurant Acoustics meeting, uh, I took the old Earth Day, uh, first Earth Day, 1967, I believe it was, statement, uh, we have seen the problem and it is us. And human beings making Lombard noise. The Lombard speech readjusts the frequencies and the levels, trying to find the, the best uh, signal noise ratio. But the dominant noise when this is going on is other people doing Lombard speech. And so these frequencies collide with each other. And very quickly, you have distress, annoyance, uh, unhappiness, uh, very much realizing you're having to cope and Lombard speech fails in Lombard noise. So one must not let Lombard, Lombard noise happen. If there is any possibility of a restaurant getting into Lombard noise, there also should not be live music uh, unless it is to be the center of attention. Because the musicians also are going to do something like the Lombard effect. They're mm. going to play harder. They're going to turn up their amplifiers and so on and so forth. And the whole thing then builds this downward spiral of the problem of noise. And there are other noises, air conditioning noise. You don't want the air conditioning noise to have too much high frequencies. You don't want it tonal. You don't want banging trays and kitchen noises and doors and, and cutlery and plates and all of that sort of thing. I think, and there have been examples you gave of the restaurant, uh, uh, Sur Mesure by uh, Thierry Marx in Paris, 
and mm -hmm. uh, the the one in uh, the Odessa restaurant Odessa with the hanging rope strands, beautiful modern architecture, and it works very well. It doesn't have to be quite that severe in terms of the acoustic reason, but still you can have, for example, absorption hidden above slats. You can have cove absorption behind cloth, which fits perfectly well with the planar, hard uh, acoustical architectural idea uh, in general to make that work, to implement it. And uh, there are acoustical materials which look hard that can be applied. Can I ask you, I'm not sure where I heard this, Wade, and this is a bit of a curveball, but I'm sure I heard something or read something that linked loudness in restaurants to obesity, saying that when there is more volume and more decibels, people eat more. And the, the article that I read, and I'm forgetting where I read it, but said, and this explains why Japanese people in quiet sushi restaurants are smaller than the average Western European or American person who eats a lot more food in louder restaurants. Do you know of any correlation or am I talking nonsense? No, no, I, I, I don't specifically, but it, it makes some sense. I, I can get the idea. And there is a relationship. There are a number of restaurateurs, owners, who believe they want a noisy restaurant because they get more turnover, <laughs> they get more money, they, they sell more drinks, and maybe they sell more food. The, the danger is they are flirting with fire mm. that the people who are there it may be such a great restaurant that it doesn't matter in the end. There are very few such cases that, that manage to survive anyway. But by and large, you're going to turn off your clientele and wind up at the long run uh, with a decline rather than a joy. People can do it one time, three times, five times, and then gradually they say, I don't really want to go back there. It was kind of a chore in terms of the energy I had to expend uh, trying to enjoy my food and my friends and everything else. Uh, I've read that in the Guardian newspaper that the UK is quieter by 50% during lockdown. And it was saying that people's relationship with quiet has grown and their connection to nature has grown during these lockdown months that we've been experiencing. Do you think that this period is going to impact sound design of spaces, this memory of a quieter time during lockdown? I think it can and it certainly should, but I'm not sure that it will do so spontaneously. I think it has to be brought to the attention of builders, architects, designers, laypeople, the entire panorama of cross-linked humanity that makes civilization. I think that could bloom in this way. I think that everybody is experiencing it. Uh, you, you described some specifics in the UK. It's been talked about here, but not in the public press really to any degree. Uh, but I think everybody is, is sensing this. And if somebody puts out something uh, in articles, news, television, whatever, that, hey, think about this, mm. that then people will say, oh, yeah. And then to plant the seed, think about what this could mean as we move forward and we have a fully integrated human in-person society again. What can we do about soundscape? in our environments, including in buildings, restaurant designs, everything else. So I think it has a tremendous positive potential, but it isn't going to get there necessarily. I'm not a cynic, no. but I think it needs to be brought specifically to think about this and then it can take off. So what's the perfect balance then for a restaurant, for a dining experience? There is a lot of flexibility still about the architectural idea, what the, the theme of the food is and so on and so forth uh, that needs to happen. And it simply needs to be understood that there are ways of remediating, uh, getting the mechanical systems and the kitchen noise and so on so it doesn't bother. And particularly so you don't have too much reverberance, too much high frequency reflectivity and reverberance, such that the Lombard effect can run away. Basically, if those things can be kept under control, which they can very well, 
uh, involve an acoustical consultant in your architecture and design, your ownership of a restaurant. Uh, do it earlier rather than later before it becomes uh, an after-the-fact problem. It still can be fixed, but it will cost more to do it. But essentially, you're making a point that good acoustics in a restaurant can improve the economics of a restaurant and improve the dining experience for the diner. So it's a win-win situation. Yes, but again, the acoustical consultant and the layperson needs to realize that the human perception is not registered. You cannot connect a dB meter, decibel sound pressure, to your head and your hearing. Uh, You have to interview the person. You have to realize there are psychoacoustic measures, which are technical measures, mathematical functions, that have been proven by jury tests and evaluations and comparisons with what people say, so that in a situation of a design of a building, of a restaurant, of a park, of a city, escape, the, the, the sound made exterior and interior to electric vehicles in, in now and in the future, uh, involves measuring, acquiring the sound technically the way the person hears in three dimensions with the binaural technique. It's in the standard ISO 12.913. Then analyze with psychoacoustic metrics, which are the basis that the human evaluates sound, mm-hmm. and then consider the context of the situation and the conjunction of all of the different senses and so on. That we are a data metadata system. Uh, you don't just have sound, and you cannot just, as an analyst or a, a measurer or, or on a basic level, say, oh, I have the DB, that's it. That's like shine, pointing a light meter at the Sistine Chapel ceiling, mm-hmm. uh, having a single microphone and measuring your DB level no, uh, in, in the situation where the person can tell you exactly what and why. And therefore, because this is in the sound, you can measure that characteristic of the sound and figure out how to improve it, remove it, uh, modify it, change the building parameters, etc. You shared a fascinating presentation deck with me. It was a presentation you delivered at the Internoise Festival in Chicago in 2018 called Hoover Dam, an example focusing soundscape, contextual sensations, realizations, and thought, in which you share a personal soundscape experience. Now, I'd imagine the Hoover Dam to be deafeningly loud, but that's not quite the story, is it? Would you mind uh, sharing more of that presentation with us, please, Wade? With particularly that aspect, the Hoover Dam is an astonishing thing. It is a huge structure. It uh, entailed many years of construction and enormous volumes of concrete and and thousands and thousands of people uh, from the original design, a few people, to the construction by thousands of people. And it indicates to me, I, I first encountered it when I was 12 years old with my parents, the design of it is very simple, yet architecturally beautiful. It's uh, industrial art deco, not overdone in any way, but very, very graceful. It looks like it could have been built yesterday. It has no time of construction about it. It gives off harmony and human design. And to me, it integrates the idea that human life and nature coexist, mm. that the function of the dam is to control water flow and uh, prevent flooding and so on, and also to generate electricity. And that by using nature's silent and eternal systems, uh, you are not polluting the atmosphere. You you have a, a means of, of getting th- literally 3 million horsepower at Hoover Dam uh, out wow. of uh, the head of water in the Lake, uh, uh, lake Mead behind the dam. There are 17 turbines, uh, all but one of which can generate 187,000 horsepower. And then very large transformers at the exterior of the generator houses. The dam is 700 feet high. So when you were standing looking over at the highway level, that goes over the top, uh, you look down and you see water 
moving with incredible slowness, but like boiling that has come out of the turbines that drive the generators into the tail race where it goes down uh, the Colorado River. And you see this happening, very peaceful, but immensely powerful. And you also hear the sound, the hum of the transformers. It is not loud, but it is massive and has a scale. And it, it is, is a sound. If you simply recorded the sound and put up a picture of something, let's say a, a big electric power substation in the country, uh, and you heard the sound, you would hear the same sound, but you would not have the same effect. The effect you get is this is enormous. It coheres with the vision, which is almost all that the eye can take in and then some. And the fact that all of this other magic of humans built this, this construction is going across time from generation to generation of people. And as a result, the sound of those transformers 700 feet down is unique in this soundscape and this sensation and everything else. And as a 12-year-old boy, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Civilization, this is an expression of civilization and what civilization is and can do. And it's very, very, very positive. You were there, I understand, romantically at nighttime with a myriad of stars above you as a 12-year-old boy. That was my second visit. Oh, yes, the, the when stars I was a boy, were... it was daytime. Daytime, okay. And we took a tour. Uh, you mentioned you, you thought it would be very loud. Uh, in the tour, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure they're doing it again, given the the 9-11 issues and all of that, but you, there are elevators mm -hmm. uh, with beautiful Art Deco entrance things at, at the dam and the two main towers across the face of the dam. You go down inside, there are beautiful terrazzo floors with uh, Native American Indian uh, oh, designs amazing. and uh, astronomical designs in the flooring. Very beautiful, mm. simple industrial Art Deco with these kinds of themes. And you go into the generator hall, and it is amazingly quiet. It's very easy to talk in the generator hall. All these machines, eight of them or nine of them, generating 187,000 horsepower each. And it is really very quiet. And it's much quieter than the noise outside from the transformers. I'll tell you something. In episode four of the Quiet Mark podcast, Shane Cryer went to an ancient Greek amphitheater where someone speaking could be heard very clearly 60 meters away because there was no walls there's no ceiling and the acoustic it's the acoustics of the sky and he said in his podcast that one of the things that his company echophon aimed to achieve is to bring the sky to a classroom through panels and and acoustic intervention but my point being is he went to the greek amphitheater to essentially gain an understanding of what they could try to bring to an everyday school building. And through doing so, we've, we hear stories on the podcast about how results have improved, well-being have improved. Can I ask, was your um, pilgrimage to Hoover Dam similar to Shane's going to the Greek amphitheatre? Was it to kind of understand something that you could then bring to a greater arena? Yes, it in effect, without my knowing the term soundscape or what soundscape consequently became, the term soundscape really originated in the modern world in 1986 uh, by the work of a gentleman named Murray Schaefer at the University of British Columbia in Canada. And uh, he wrote a book called uh, Soundscape, I believe the title was Soundscape, The Tuning of the World. Anyway, The Tuning of the World is, is the principal part of the title. Mm. And that produced a lot of attention. And there has now been a confluence continuing and very much now uh, together between sound quality engineering and psychoacoustic metrics. The automotive industry has been the principal 
uh, user of psychoacoustic metrics over the years, and environmental has come in with the soundscape idea, and psychoacoustics knits it all together. The idea, again, in the soundscape standard that one must consider the human as the objective measuring instrument, mm-hmm. interview the person, acquire the technical data, the sound, binaurally, so a human can perceive it the same, and then consider the, the acoustics, the people, and the context as an overlapping set that data and metadata must be considered together, and the analyst has to know not only what the metadata were that the uh, original experiencer had, but also they have to know their own uh, metadata as a human being. So there, I, I consider there might be three levels of metadata. The first one is what the experiencer is using subconsciously or consciously, mm-hmm. as well as the ear signals coming to their ears in order to have a sound event and a meaning. Then the analyst needs to have the second order metadata to know about the first experiencer's metadata. Then the third order of metadata is look inward and think about what is the magic that is going on in your brain, the magic of your perception. Another thing in my Internoise uh, 2018 paper was the handbell choir and the subtlety, for example, that when a handbell is rung, it's in motion and it is rung and then stopped. And that is when the, the clapper hits the bell mm-hmm. and then the bell is brought back. Consider what's happening. The bell is moving away from the listener. So there is a phase stretch, if you will. Mm-hmm. And then simultaneously, there is sound being reflected off the wall behind the player where the bell is approaching and there is a phase compression. And it's very slight. It's like a mini- minimalist Doppler effect mm. in two directions at once. And it produces this very beautiful spatial magic of modulation of phase and space. And with each different position, the reflection pattern in the room is different. So a handbell choir concert involves people playing bells at different rates at different times of different pitches, all of them in motion, and the complexity is absolutely enormous, yet it is a gentle sound, and the enjoyment that comes from anybody listening to a handbell choir is wonderful, and if you think about this aspect that I just mentioned, it becomes even more wonderful. You can think about it after you hear it, but go to a handbell concert and think about it while it's happening. I have to go to a handbell concert. Not something I've actually been to. I'm a big music fan. I go to concerts all the time, Wade. And you're making me think that a lot of the music that I listen to, and I, I go and see jazz and popular and rock and all sorts of stuff, but actually... It's all good. It's all good stuff. But you know what? It's probably been played in venues that weren't really designed for modern plugged-up bands, you know. And I'm thinking that must yes. cause some issues. It does. Uh, the idea of uh, the, the front of house mix so that the performers in a, a, a big venue and high level sounds are able to hear one another properly. The, the idea, again, of musician coherence is very important. And then getting the sound out, uh, the consideration of the acoustics and whatever electroacoustic needs are necessary, uh, and they can be overdone. For example, if you have a high-energy band in a, uh, a concert hall, hmm. uh, you have to be very careful and not amplify very much because you start driving too many reflections, too much reverberance, and it becomes chaotic. The venue is very appropriate. Another thing in the, the modern megachurch, the very large churches that can happen, is the music comes from a high-energy band, which might overdrive, might have too much sound loudness, and also, there are not enough early reflections around to support the congregational singing. So there have been issues, and I got involved in a consultation once where this was happening, where effectively the, the congregants who were wanting to sing, and it was expected they would sing in praise, they couldn't because they couldn't even hear themselves. And when I went to evaluate this church, I had a meeting afterwards with the clergy, and uh, I brought this up very gently, and they were quite thunderstruck. And I said, there is a balance that can be done. If the support music can be very careful and not and give the energy, it can have the energy without too much level, then the congregants can sing. And then everything works better in terms of the cohesion 
of a body of worship. And uh, if that's squashed by poor acoustics plus too much level of the support music, mm. it can't happen. And there are implications of that. That's one of the implications I suggest in restaurant acoustics about congregational singing. Think of the servo loops, what your brain is doing, what you're hearing, what you're doing, trying to sing. All of these things, what you're trying to do in a restaurant to talk with your friends and not have to raise your voice and not have to become aware of it. All of these are feedback loops that are being processed by the 86 billion neuron system. And one can produce architectures that are wonderful such that the whole experience stays in the good zone, doesn't draw apart and break up into problems and having to cope and energy wasted in wrong directions and all of that sort of thing. In your paper that you shared with me, talking of the 86 billion neuroned brain, as you were just saying there, Wade, in your paper, there was a slide that talked about the brain, but also mentioned how IBM's Watson had beaten the human brain at the game of Jeopardy. Why did you include that in your presentation? I wanted to give a perspective about the uh, remarkable power and the energy input of the brain and the fact that we all have one. The human brain weighs 2.4, I believe, kilograms. It uh, requires 12.6 watts all the time. Uh, that seems to be one of the uh, very highly regulated uh, quantities in, in the living human organism. Another one is the 98.6 degree Fahrenheit body temperature in the healthy person. Another one is the 50 millivolt action potential for the function of the inner ear from the stria vascularis in the cochlea of the ear, which acts like a battery and drives the ionic current called the silent current. That's a whole additional area of, of fascinating discussion. Anyway, the human brain at 12.6 watts, you may think that's not very much, but the resting metabolism of a person uh, measured chemically is 63 watts. 20% of that is the brain. Sleeping, waking, no matter what you're doing. If you're thinking hard, you may get tired from that, but your brain is still taking only 12.6 watts. The amount of processing and magic that it does and manages in your body, your kinesthetics, for example, uh, the musician, the scientist, uh, the architect, the, uh, the gymnast flying through the air and knowing exactly how to land. All of this is being managed by the brain. Um, and in order to try to get at some of the capability of the brain, IBM had to use 2,880 CPU boards, uh -huh. each with 12 billion transistors, and a resting power input of 90,000 watts in order to be able to perhaps most of the time, beat a human being at the game of Jeopardy. That machine was brought to quote-unquote life and continued by a group of 2,500 human CPUs, each with 86 billion transistors. So the miracle of the human mind uh, needs to be kept in, in literally in mind, and all of these aspects that make soundscape and design, and the fact that we can produce things to cohere with all of this and deepen our societal and civilizational and soundscape greatness, if you will, uh, just needs to be brought uh, more to general attention. You mentioned how the human is an objective measurement tool. And you've said within this conversation that um, you want to understand their perception of sound. And you've, you've talked about the technique requiring interview, asking the question of the human, what they felt, why they felt it, and how various conditions change their perceptions. Will AI replace humans in that measurement, if AI can learn the way a human perceives sound, or is that are we far off that? We are still rather far off, but it's a, a lot of work is being done, which is very promising and very effective. There is a lot of machine learning work. Our company is doing machine learning work and papers, and we have three webinars coming up right now about uh, machine learning in uh, matching human perception. So we are heading there, but the the human organism with all of these other thoughts consider 
a nearly infinite number of concentric shells of a sphere, if you will, as a relational database with arrows going instantly differently uh, in different directions among different levels. That is what your brain is doing. Uh, the matter of, for example, uh, the driving sense of a car robustly changing. You feel the car handles better and is more fun because you're hearing the Porsche sound instead mm. of the original sound or the Mercedes sound uh, is real. The effect of the McGurk where you see ba 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 uh, and you hear ba 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 and you see the person going fa 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 without touching the lips. The sound still blah, blah, blah. You cannot hear it that way. You absolutely can't. I've seen engineers get very agitated and upset, and they say, I'm an engineer. I know this. Why can't I hear it despite seeing this image? Because your brain will not let you. It's that powerful. And a lot of what it is doing about this, you're not even aware of at a conscious level. Interesting. About 2013, I was working with virtual reality. And I saw an experience, or I should say I saw and I experienced an experience because I heard it as well, called Stone Milker by Bjork, who's one of my favourite artists, performing artists. And within this VR experience, the camera was locked off on an Icelandic beach. And it was just basically black sand, almost white skies. And Bjork, in a lime green dress in contrast to the background, looking amazing, she appears via sort of a split screen in six different positions in 360 around you. And at some points, she's close to camera. And in other points, she's quite far away on the furthest banks of the, of, the, of the sandbank on this beach. And when you turned your head, if you were listening to, say, Bjork number two, who was far away, the singing sounded far away. But as you turned your head to the left and you saw Bjork sound, sound, standing near you, suddenly she appeared near you. So from my understanding of binaural recording and spatial sound, it's very much that you can turn your head within an experience, and it sounds the way it would in, in real life. Is that is that right? With a proviso, uh, with a, a binaural recording, unless you have a head tracker, whereby the fact that your head is turning while you're listening is known and processed so that the world stays still. Otherwise, the world is going to swing with you when you turn your head. Exactly. So if the recording device was stationary and you turn your head, it tends to uh, interfere with the accuracy of, of what you're hearing because your world is moving with you locked onto your head. And there are head tracking devices that can uh, break that so that you can, for example, particularly with a video, uh, be able to turn your head and hear the sound. The world stays stationary and you hear where you're looking and you can pay attention visually and say, oh, oh yeah, I'd like to listen to that. Another thing that your brain does is, is able to be commented on in the so-called cocktail party effect, where you come into a room and there are maybe 30 or 40 people uh, all talking away with one another, twos or threes and so on. And they're all similar level, similar loudness, uncorrelated, different directions. And your brain says, ah, this person is talking about quiet, Mark. I'd like to listen to that. And so you, without turning your head, you can direct your attention acoustically and mentally again, the wonderful signal processor, and suppress everything else and listen to that discussion. Then they go off into something else and that becomes noise and some other discussion in a different position in space uh, draws your attention and you can then focus on that. Uh, but the real question is, can you let the person you're speaking to know that you're not doing that? Because I've been stuck with people going, you're not listening to me, are you? You're listening to that quiet mark conversation down the table <laughs> over there. Like, no, no, well, I'm really listening to you. That's up to you. You can't fake it. If, if your <laughs> mind is somewhere, there is some sense in your in your visage that uh, your attention is not totally with the uh, immediate. Oh, wait, I, I'm, I'm yet to master that skill, I have to confess. I think everybody is yet to master that skill. <laughs> and so be careful because you won't uh, upset someone, so to speak. During lockdown, oh, I'm not being I, I did want to say something else. I, I just had I'll a thought again on the restaurant. In a restaurant, consider that electroacoustic soundscape 
enhancement and production can be brought in. You can have, for example, uh, big video walls that are part of the simple planar architecture in which with carefully controlled lighting in the space, you can have, for example, a, a grove of aspens that you're on a, a, a mountain slope and you see different aspens in, in this late afternoon sun in different positions. And the spatial sound system of array loudspeakers hidden in the ceiling and in the architecture, spatially modulated, can provide the sense of wind gently rattling these leaves and produce a whole sense that doesn't necessarily come uh, to dominate the attention, but definitely to contribute to the goodness. And then you could also change that. You could, for example, be flying by a drone uh, through Vienna at dusk while you just barely hear the Emperor Waltz being played. Uh, or you could be floating high over the Grand Canyon or in the Alps in Switzerland uh, with the sound of air and birds very quietly. So these things can enhance the sense and they can also be at essentially no ongoing architectural cost. They can be a design element to have a plasticity of theme in a restaurant and to always refresh and renew what the restaurant might do. Are you saying that we sub that the subconscious hears the rustling leaves, but we don't go, oh, I can hear leaves? Yes, yes. There, there are things which can be at a low enough level that if you're thinking about it, you definitely hear it. But if you're interested in your conversation, uh, you can't think about this, even with other noises. Let's say that you have moved from a quiet neighborhood to a neighborhood with a major thoroughfare with traffic noise. Mm-hmm. And for the first maybe few weeks, you have a little difficulty sleeping, and you're very aware of the traffic noise awaking or sleeping. You acclimate to this, and you don't really notice it. You tune it out. For example, if you have a somewhat obnoxious air conditioning noise that isn't too obnoxious, but it's still obnoxious, your brain, at some mental effort, is able to suppress it, but it's still a soundscape element. And when it stops, you suddenly know that you were not noticing it before. You notice it was there and it's now stopped and things are much better. I've often been to, say, a friend's flat and they live near a railway line. And I go, God, how do you sleep with the trains going by? And they go, what trains? Because <laughs> they've acclimatized to it. And if you then have lived in the noisy environment like that and acclimated, then you go to a quiet space and it's too quiet and your, your, your brain hasn't gotten used to it yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, there has to be, uh, and again, this is a matter of the, the subliminal, the near subliminal can be very effective. And I think the, uh, particularly with visual help, the technical electroacoustic soundscape concept uh, could be very effective. A point I'd like to make that uh, my colleague, Professor Genowit, in his presentation in the Restaurant Acoustics Papers session in the Amer- uh, Acoustical Society of America Louisville meeting, he pointed out that soundscape involves stepwise design. There are three steps. There is plus design to add new sound elements, preserve design to preserve and strengthen the wanted sound components, and minus design to reduce and avoid unwanted sound components. So with those three aspects, we can consider uh, conventional acoustics in terms of noise and uh, uh, reverberance and those things, and we can produce and tune them and preserve good things and add new design elements, uh, either uh, acoustically in terms of absorption, reverberance, diffusion, and also the idea of electroacoustic enhancement. There is a company called Meyer Sound that is doing a restaurant electroacoustic system that is called Meyer Sound Constellation. They also do a version of it differently, completely different idea, uh, but similar electroacoustic enhancement in concert halls, along with what we did in Jaffe Acoustics, ERES, Electronic Reflected Energy System, and the Lexicon Massachusetts Company, L-A-R-E-S, which is a similar electroacoustic 
to help music with uh, artificially timed reflections and so on. It does not sound in any way technical or, uh, or sound system-ish. It simply is real, all of these things. So what Meyer Sound is doing in restaurants, and I don't know the details, is apparently to produce a false speech-like signal, which is non-localizable and which is ramped up and down according to occupancy of the restaurant, such that people feel that there are there have to obviously be some other diners in order visually and understandably in the mind for this to work, mm-hmm. but to produce a false speech sense that prevents the Lombard speech from the actual people ever starting to happen. And uh, they have done this in several restaurants and have done some papers about it. Now, we've been talking about concert halls and measuring the sound within concert halls and and the ideal acoustics. Concert halls is something you're very familiar with, not just in your professional life, but in your personal life. You shared with me some examples of your organ playing, and it was amazing. I particularly liked the version of Till There Was You, the song that was classically covered by the Beatles. It's just so beautiful. I'd love to ask you more about your history and your passion for playing the organ. Where shall we begin that story? When did you start? Oh, this is is too long a story almost, <laughs> but uh, we'll start. Uh, my beginning interest in music and sound were really simultaneous. That When I was five years old, uh, my parents and I were traveling from Los Angeles, where I was born and raised. Uh, northward, my parents intended to go on to Canada, but my father's parents lived in Medford, Oregon, the state just north of California. And so they uh, intended to leave me with uh, Grandpa and Grandma Bray, and they would go on to Canada for two weeks, and I would stay with Grandma and Grandpa Bray. My grandfather was a Methodist minister, and uh, of course, they took me to church and he sat me down in the choir stalls and I happened to be able to see the organist. And I became <laughs> riveted by what was going on in terms of the organ music and how it was being made. I was watching, I moved closer and so on. <laughs> so uh, that was, a, a, I think, a beginning of the interest in both music and sound. Then when I was about 11, the hi-fi era was hitting in full swing. Mm-hmm. And in Los Angeles, there was going to be a big audio show in a downtown hotel. And I pestered my mother and take me, take me. So she finally did. (laughs) And uh, I noticed that what was being used to demonstrate a lot of turntables and speakers and amplifiers and so on was organ music, both classical and theater. And there was a theater organist named George Wright, who is quite a legend. Anyone who knows about him and theater organs will recognize that name. And uh, his music, which was literally selling millions of LP records, and then shortly after the next year, stereo records, uh, were were quite the thing in that time. Mm. And the instrument built in the 19-teens and 20s and maybe early 30s for the cinema and the silent film had taken on a new life as a, an expression of popular music in uh, the hi-fi era and, yes. and beyond. And so it really revitalized the theater organ. So that kind of lit the fire about organ music with me. Mm-hmm. And I approached my parents and said, I want to study the organ. And so they got me a piano teacher. And we had a big old console piano, a big tall console piano. So unfortunately, the teacher was not that much inculcating enthusiasm in me. And I was a little bored. So my mother would say, well, why aren't you practicing? And I would say, I've done that page. <laughs> So they pulled the rug out from under me and said, we're not doing music lessons anymore. You don't seem to be really that interested. If you ever want to do anything again, you really have to convince us. So a while later, I approached the bench again and said, I am really convinced I want to study organ. So through family connections, they found a marvelous piano and organ teacher who was a Scot named James H. Shearer from Glasgow, who had been a student of the French organist-composer Charles-Marie 
Widor at uh, the Church of Saint-Sulpice in Paris. He studied with him for two or three years in the late 1920s and uh, was an absolutely rigorous yet wonderfully creative, intensive, great musician. So he took me under the wing and he says, you will study piano before for two years at least before I let you touch an organ. You have to get piano technique. Hmm. And uh, he says, you, you cannot be a fully good organist and you can't make an organ dance and you can't interface with acoustics properly as an organist unless you are a pianist. So he did so and he made me practice six hours a day in the summer when I was home from school and uh, really, really, really work. And I began to, to get a little tired of that. And my mother told him, uh, Mr. Shearer, we have to do something to keep Wade fired up here. <laughs> so uh, getting to an organ. So Mr. Shearer took me to a big church in Pasadena, California, with a nice four-manual organ. And, and the organist choir master there was a friend. So he played, and then he sat me down to play. So that started the fire. I had classical training, and I realized that there are a number of precepts of Jean-Marie Widor that are in my playing that I hear in the recordings now, even in theater organ. And I'm very, very, very glad that I had the honor in my life of him as my teacher. Uh, he frowned on theater organs to some extent, but he didn't frown on music of any kind. And uh, being at one remove from having been taught by Charles-Marie Widor. So then, in particularly the 1980s, uh, when I lived in Connecticut, I got uh, quite involved in both the classical organ scene. I was subdean, in effect, vice president of the Bridgeport chapter of the American Guild of Organists, the classical and church group, and also got involved in the Theater Organ Society, the American Theater Organ Society, Connecticut Valley chapter, and wound up doing concerts by invitation to theater organ chapters and getting invited to play various organs. One of my contacts in the Bridgeport AGO chapter was a gentleman who had recently received his master's from the School of Sacred Music at Yale University. And Yale University has Woolsey Hall, which was built in 1901. And from 1915 onward, a wonderful pipe organ was built, culminating in 1928 in the present instrument, which is 197 ranks, four manuals, nine chambers of pipes on five different levels, uh, nearly 13,000 pipes. It's called the Newberry Memorial Organ. It is considered one of the finest, uh, maybe two finest symphonic pipe organs in the world. And Daniel Roth, who is the current organist of Saint-Sulpice in Paris, considers it the finest pipe organ in the United States. I, I got invited to have a go at it two different times. Mm -hmm. And I'm very, very, very honored now in retrospect, especially at, at that having happened. I recorded all of that. Oh, wow. And you have some of it, Simon. Yes, I've enjoyed that very much. You sent me a lovely paper that showed examples of the organs you've been fortunate enough to play in the United States and the amazing spaces. Even though a piece of music is essentially a series of black notes on a white page, how much does the sound of the room change the way you play from one organ to another, from one theatre to another? It, one theatre or one church or one auditorium, uh, each organ is unique. They have a lot of things in common about what the keyboards are called and what the ranks of pipes are called and the general sounds. But each organ has its own unique character and capability and gestalt, if you will. And an organ, especially, is not a musical instrument without the room. And the room and the organ together are form the instrument. And the organ is designed for the room and then is tonally finished and regulated in the room so that everything comes out the way it should. Have you ever experienced a situation where the instrument and the room were so perfectly attuned that they actually enabled you to play a piece you might otherwise have struggled to play in another space? That happened to me twice, uh, and it was quite astonishing each time. And I've talked with other musicians, not only organists, and it turns out this happens uh, one or, once or twice in everybody's life, uh, musically speaking. Uh, basically, the first one was I was invited to give a concert in the Providence Performing Arts Center, the former Lowe's Providence Theater in Providence, Rhode Island, U.S. Mm -hmm. And that is a movie palace of more than 3,000 seats. 
and it has a five manual, five keyboard Wurlitzer theater organ, a very nice one. Beautiful. So I was invited to get acquainted with the organ and, and see what I thought. And I came and I played it for about an hour and a half. And suddenly it struck me that I could play a piece that I had struggled with. I loved the piece. And I've been able to work out sections of it and never make it go all the way through. I could never do that. I always crash and burn. <laughs> the Waltz in Swing Time, Jerome Kern, from the 1936 Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movie, On Your Toes. Oh, so it suddenly hit me. I can play the Waltz in Swing Time right now. And I did it. And it came out. How amazing. And, uh, afterwards, I said, how, how in the world did I do that? And fortunately, I recorded it, and you have that recording. Have you, since being able to do that in that, that unique space, have you now, can you now play it anywhere, or, or does it only occur in that space? It only occurred once. <laughs> I've, I've tried again. And it, I could probably do it if I really put my mind to it, but uh, uh, it, it, it bloomed once, and that was it. That's amazing. My goodness, the joy in your eyes when you're telling these stories. It's fantastic. I'm a drummer. My, all my kids play instruments. And I, I share the passion that you're sharing here. And it really does demonstrate how Wade Bray ended up working in acoustics from being a five-year-old boy in a Methodist church hearing an organ. I've really enjoyed your passion and enthusiasm for music, for acoustics and Quiet Mark. We're very grateful to you for giving up your time and giving of your wisdom. Thank you so much for taking the time. You're very welcome. And I appreciate and I'm honored by your having invited me to this forum and that I can I can share some of what is so important to me and I hope will get across to others as well. And the fact that you can all enjoy acoustics, you can all think about it, and you can all, all make improvement in the soundscape of your life. Perfect. On that note, stay safe and goodbye, Wade. The same to you, Simon. It's a pleasure. God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. God bless you. Thank you so much to Wade Bray for sharing his wealth of experience and to Head Acoustics for giving us some of his valuable time. During our conversation, you'd have heard me say that I thought I could remember reading somewhere that there was a correlation between loudness and obesity, but I couldn't remember where I'd read it. So I've done a search online and I found the article that I read, and it was a couple of years ago, back in May 2018 on today.com, with the headline, How Loud Restaurants Can Lead to Unhealthy Eating Choices. Think twice about jamming out to loud music while dining. And in this feature, by Erica Chase-Weeder, she mentions a recent study conducted by Dipian Biswas, PhD, marketing professor at the University of South Florida's Moomer College of Business, where researchers found that diners made very different food choices based on the music they could hear. According to the study, which was published in the Journal of the Academy of Marketing Sciences, volume is proven to impact heart rate and arousal. Naturally, louder music ignites excitement, stimulation and stress, while softer music seems to have a calming effect. Diners who were exposed to louder noises ordered foods that were significantly higher in calories, while those who were listening to softer music routinely made more health-conscious choices. So I wasn't imagining it. Interestingly, the article also goes on to say that to perform the main part of the study, Biswas and his team took over a cafe in Stockholm, Sweden for several days to conduct their study among hundreds of subjects. As patrons peruse menus coded into healthy, unhealthy and neutral choices, researchers played the same playlist with a mix of contemporary rock, 
pop music and classical tunes in a loop for several hours. On some days they played songs at 55 decibels, and on other days they pumped up the jams to 70 decibels. When Biswas reviewed the cafe sales, he found that 20% more customers ordered high-calorie foods when the music volume was high, regardless of what the song was playing. And in addition, to further test this theory, Biswas did the same type of test in a nearby Swedish grocery store and found that shoppers purchased more cookies, chips and red meat when music was played at 70 decibels, but they actually bought more produce when it was played at 50 decibels. Last February, QuietMark launched its Acoustics Academy, a brand new, free-to-use online platform to further equip and empower architects, builders and designers with a guide to expertly verified leading acoustic solutions for every building application area. So, if you're building a restaurant or the owner of a restaurant and are interested in improving the acoustic performance of the restaurant to make it a better experience for the diners, go to acousticsacademy.com where you'll be invited to select a building type. Listed under commercial, you'll find restaurants. And within the restaurant section, you'll be able to select an acoustic application area, be it exterior sound control, sound buildup and reverberation control, sound reduction of walls, floors and doors, impact footfall sound control, sound masking, ventilation and heating systems and interior sound sources and when you go to those areas you'll find quiet mark awarded and verified products to help control sound within your restaurant and create a better experience for everyone thank you for listening to episode six of the quiet mark podcast if you're a first-time listener of our podcast welcome to the show i hope you've enjoyed it and i welcome you to check out previous episodes which cover subjects such as biophilic acoustics looking at what nature has taught us about sound design and acoustics in education with shane crier which looks at how improved acoustics within the classroom can reduce absenteeism, improve grades, and create a better sense of well-being for everyone. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you can join us for future episodes. But for now, stay safe, take care, and goodbye. Bye for now.